CD5 The sun rose. As the golden light spilled down the fertile valley of the Dajel, the pyramid flares paled and became ghost dancers against the lightening sky. They were now accompanied by a noise. It had been there all the time, far too high-pitched for mortal ears, a sound now dropping down from the far ultrasonic. It screamed out of the sky, a thin rind of sound like a violin bow dragged across the raw surface of the brain. Or a wet fingernail dragged over an exposed nerve, some said. You could set your watch by it, they would have said, if anyone knew what one was. It went deeper and deeper as the sunlight washed over the stones, passing through cat scream to dog growl. The flares collapsed. A fine morning, sire. I trust you slept well. Tepic waved a hand at Dios, but said nothing. The barber was working through the ceremony of going forth shaven. The barber was trembling. Until recently he had been a one-handed, unemployed stonemason. Then the terrible high priest had summoned him and ordered him to be the king's barber. But it meant you had to touch the king. But it was all right, because it was all sorted out by the priests, and nothing more had to be chopped off. On the whole, it was better than he had thought, and a great honour to be single-handedly responsible for the king's beard, such as it was. "'You were not disturbed in any way?' said the high priest. His eyes scanned the room on a raster of suspicion. It was surprising that little lines of molten rock didn't drip off the walls. "'Very—' "'If you would but hold still, O never-dying one!' said the barber, in the pleading tone of voice employed by one who is assured of a guided tour of a crocodile's elementary tract if he nicks an ear. "'You heard no strange noises, sire?' said Dios. He stepped back suddenly so that he could see behind the gilded peacock screen at the other end of the room. "'No.' "'Your Majesty looks a little peaky this morning, sire,' said Dios. "'He sat down on the bench with the carved cheetahs on either end. "'Sitting down in the presence of the king, except on ceremonial occasions, "'was not something that was allowed. "'It did, however, mean that he could squint under Tepic's low bed.' "'Dios was rattled. "'Despite the aches and the lack of sleep, Tepic felt oddly elated. "'He wiped his chin. "'It's the bed,' he said. "'I think I have mentioned it. "'Mattresses, you know.' They have feathers in them. If the concept is unfamiliar, ask the pirates of Kali. Half of them must be sleeping on goose-feather mattresses by now. His Majesty is pleased to joke, said Dios. Tepic knew he shouldn't push it any further, but he did so anyway. Something wrong, Dios, he said. A miscreant broke into the palace last night. The girl Putrachi is missing. That is very disturbing. Yes, sire. "'Probably a suitor or a swain or something.' "'Dios's face was like stone. "'Possibly, sire. "'The sacred crocodiles will be going hungry, then.' "'But not for long,' Tepic thought. "'Walk to the end of any of the little jetties down by the bank, "'let your shadow fall on the river, "'and the mud-yellow water would become, by magic, mud-yellow bodies.' 
They looked like large, sodden logs, the main difference being that logs don't open at one end and bite your legs off. The sacred crocodiles of the Dajel were the kingdom's garbage disposal, river patrol and occasional morgue. They couldn't simply be called big. If one of the huge bulls ever drifted sideways onto the current, he'd dam the river. The barber tiptoed out. A couple of body servants tiptoed in. I anticipated your majesty's natural reaction, sire, Dios continued, like the drip of water in deep limestone caverns. Jolly good, said Tepic, inspecting the clothes for the day. What was it exactly? A detailed search of the palace, room by room. Absolutely. Carry on, Dios. My face is perfectly open, he told himself. I haven't twitched a muscle out of place. I know I haven't. He can read me like a steel. I can outstare him. Uh, thank you, sire. I imagine they'll be miles away by now, said Tepic, whoever they were. She was only a handmaiden, wasn't she? It is unthinkable that anyone could disobey your judgments. There is no one in the kingdom that would dare to. Their souls would be forfeit. They will be hunted down, sir. Hunted down and destroyed. The servants cowered behind Tepic. This wasn't mere anger. This was wrath. Real old-time vintage wrath. And waxing? It waxed like a hatful of moons. Are you feeling all right, Dios? Dios had turned to look out across the river. The Great Pyramid was almost complete. The sight of it seemed to calm him down, or at least stabilise him on some new mental plateau. Yes, sire, he said. Thank you. He breathed deeply. Tomorrow, sire, you are pleased to witness the capping of the pyramid. A momentous occasion. Of course, it will be some time before the interior chambers are completed. Fine. Fine, and this morning I think I should like to visit my father. I am sure the late king will be pleased to see you, sire. It is your wish that I should accompany you. Oh. It's a fact as immutable as the third law of Sod that there is no such thing as a good grand vizier. A predilection to cackle and plot is apparently part of the job spec. High priests tend to get put in the same category. They have to face the implied assumption that no sooner do they get the funny hat than they're issuing strange orders, e.g. princesses tied to rocks for itinerant sea monsters and throwing little babies in the sea. This is a gross slander. Throughout the history of the disc, most high priests have been serious, pious and conscientious men who have done their best to interpret the wishes of the gods sometimes disemboweling or flaying alive hundreds of people in a day in order to make sure they're getting it absolutely right. King Tepikaimon XXVII's casket lay in state. Crafted it was of Forifi, Smaradgeen, Skelsa and Delphinet. Inlaid it was with pink jade and showed, perfumed and fumed it was with many rare resins and perfumes. It looked very impressive, but the king considered... It wasn't worth dying for. He gave up and wandered across the courtyard. A new player had entered the drama of his death. Gringer, the maker of models. He'd always wondered about the models. Even a humble farmer expected to be buried with a selection of crafted livestock, which would somehow become real in the netherworld. Many a man may do with one cow like a toast rack in this world in order to afford a pedigree herd in the next. 
Nobles and kings got the complete set, including model carts, houses, boats, and anything else too big or inconvenient to fit in the tomb. Once on the other side, they'd somehow become the genuine article. The king frowned. When he was alive, he'd known that it was true, not doubted it for a moment. Gringer stuck his tongue out of the corner of his mouth as with great care he tweezed a tiny oar to a perfect one-eightieth scale river trireme. Every flat surface in his corner of the workshop was stacked with midget animals and artefacts. Some of his more impressive ones hung from wires on the ceiling. The king had already ascertained from overheard conversation that Gringer was twenty-six, couldn't find anything to stop the inexorable advance of his acne, and lived at home with his mother where, in the evenings, he made models. Deep in the duffel coat of his mind, he hoped one day to find a nice girl who would understand the absolute importance of getting every detail right on a ceremonial six-wheeled ox-cart, and who would hold his glue-pot and always be ready with a willing thumb whenever anything needed firm pressure until the paste dried. He was aware of Trumpet's excitement behind him. He ignored it. There always seemed to be a lot of fuss these days. In his experience, it was always about trivial things. People just didn't have their priorities right. He'd been waiting two months for a few ounces of gum varnetti, and it didn't seem to bother anyone. He screwed his eyeglass into a more comfortable position and slotted a minute steering oar into place. Someone was standing next to him. Well, they could make themselves useful. Uh, uh, c c could you just put your finger here? he said, without glancing around. J uh, just for a minute, until the glow sets. There seemed to be a sudden drop in temperature. He looked up into a smiling, golden mask. Over its shoulder, Dios's face was shading. In Gringer's expert opinion, from number 13, pale flesh, to number 37, sunset purple, gloss. Oh, he said. It's very good, said Tepic. What is it? Gringer blinked at him. Then he blinked at the boat. Uh, it's an eighty-foot carly-fashioned river trireme with fishtail spear deck and ramming prow, he said automatically. He got the impression that more was expected of him. He cast around for something suitable. It's got more than five hundred bits, he added. Every plank on the deck is individually cut. Look. Fascinating, said Tepic. Well, I won't hold you up. Carry on the good work. The sail really unfurls, said Gringer. See, if you pull this thread, the... The mask had moved. Dios was there instead. He gave Gringer a short glare which indicated that more would be heard about this later on and hurried after the king. So did the ghost of Tepikaim on the 27th. Tepik's eyes swivelled behind the mask. There was the open doorway into the room of caskets. He could just make out the one containing Petracci, the wedge of wood was still under the lid. "'Our father, however, is over here, sire,' said Dios. He could move as silently as a ghost. "'Oh, yes.' Tepic hesitated and then crossed to the big case on its trestles. He stared down at it for some time. The gilded face on the lid looked like every other mask. "'A very good likeness, sire,' prompted Dios. "'Yes,' said Tepic. I suppose so. He definitely looks happier, I suppose. Hello, my boy, said the king. He knew that no one could hear him, but he felt happier talking to them all the same. It was better than talking to himself. He was going to have more than enough time for that. 
"'I think it brings out the best in him, O Commander of the Heavens,' said the head sculptor. "'Makes me look like a constipated wax dolly!' Tepic cocked his head on one side. "'Yes,' he said uncertainly. "'Yes. Uh, well done.' He half turned to look through the doorway again. Dios nodded to the guards on either side of the passageway. "'If you will excuse me, sire,' he said urbanely. Hmm? "'The guards will continue their search.' Uh, "'Right. Oh.' Dios bore down on Petrachi's casket. Flanked by guards, he gripped the lid, thrust it backwards, and said, Behold, what do we find? Dill and Gurn joined him. They looked inside. Wood shavings, said Dill. Gurn sniffed. They smell nice, though, he said. Dios's fingers drummed on the lid. Tepic had never seen him at a loss before. The man actually started tapping the sides of the case, apparently seeking any hidden panels. He closed the lid carefully and looked blankly at Tepic, who for the first time was very glad that the mask didn't reveal his expression. "'She's not in there,' said the old king. "'She got out for a call of nature when the men went to have their breakfast.' "'She must have climbed out,' Tepic told himself. "'So where is she now?' Dios scanned the room carefully, and then after swinging slowly backwards and forwards like a compass, fixed on the king's mummy case. It was big. It was roomy. There was a certain inevitability about it. He crossed the room in a couple of strides and heaved it open. "'Don't bother to knock,' the king grumbled. "'It's not as if I'm going anywhere.' Tepic risked a look. The mummy of the king was quite alone. "'Are you sure you're feeling all right, Dios?' he said. "'Yes, sire. We cannot be too careful, sire. Certainly they are not here, sire.' "'You look as if you could do with a breath of fresh air,' said Tepic, upbraiding himself for doing this, but doing it nevertheless. Dios, at a loss, was an awe-inspiring sight, and slightly disconcerting. It made one instinctively fear for the stability of things. "'Yes, sire. Uh, thank you, sire. "'Have a sit down and someone will bring you a glass of water, and then we will go and inspect the pyramid.' Dios sat down. There was a terrible little splintering noise. "'He sat on the boat,' said the king. First humorous thing I've seen him do.' The pyramid gave a new meaning to the word massive. It bent the landscape around it. It seemed to Tepic that its very weight was deforming the shape of things, stretching the kingdom like a lead ball on a rubber sheet. He knew that was a ridiculous idea. Big though the pyramid was, it was tiny compared to, say, a mountain. But big, very big, compared with anything else. Anyway, mountains were meant to be big. The fabric of the universe was used to the idea. The pyramid was a made thing, much bigger than a made thing ought to be. It was also very cold. The black marble of its sides was shining white with frost in the roasting afternoon sun. He was foolish enough to touch it and left a layer of skin on the surface. It's freezing! "'It's storing already, <laughs> O oh, breath of the river,' said Pataclasp, who was sweating. "'It's the, um, the, uh, what's the name, the boundary effect. "'I note that you have ceased work on the burial chambers,' said Dios. "'The men, um, the temperature boundary effect, uh, a bit too much to risk,' muttered Pataclasp. "'Um, 
Tepic looked from one to the other. "'What's the matter?' he said. "'Are there problems?' "'Mmm,' said Pataclusp. "'You're way ahead of schedule. Marvellous work,' said Tepic. "'You've put a tremendous amount of labour on the job.' "'Er, uh, yes, only...' There was a silence except for the distant sounds of men at work and the faint noise of the air sizzling where it touched the pyramid. "'It's bound to be all right when we get the capstone on,' the pyramid builder managed eventually. "'Once it's flaring properly, no problem.' Um. He indicated the Electrum capstone. It was surprisingly small, only a foot or so across, and rested on a couple of trestles. "'We should be able to put it on tomorrow.' said Pataclusp. Would your sire still be honouring us with the capping-out ceremony? In his nervousness, he gripped the hem of his robe and began to twist it. There's drinks, he stuttered, and a silver trowel that you can take away with you. Everyone shouts hurrah and throws their hats in the air. Certainly, said Dios, it will be an honour. And for us too, your sire, said Pataclusp loyally. I meant for you, said the high priest. He turned to the wide courtyard between the base of the pyramid and the river, which was lined with statues and stelae commemorating King Tepikaimon's mighty deeds, and pointed. The carvers had to use quite a lot of imagination. The late king had had many fine attributes, but Dumas wasn't among them. The score was, number of enemies ground as dust under his chariot wheels, zero. Number of thrones crushed beneath his sandaled feet, zero. Number of times world bestrode like Colossus, zero. On the other hand, reigns of terror, zero. Number of times own throne crushed beneath enemy sandals, zero. Faces of poor ground, zero. Expensive crusades embarked upon, zero. His life had basically been a no-score win. And you can get rid of that, he added. Pataclusp gave him a look of unhappy innocence. That statue, said Dias, is what I am referring to. Oh, ah, well, we thought once you saw it in place, you see, in the right light, and what with the hat and the vulture-headed god being very, um... It goes, said Dios. Right you are, your reverence, said Pataclusp, miserably. It was right now the least of his problems, but on top of everything else he was beginning to think that the statue was following him around. Dios leaned closer. "'You haven't seen a young woman anywhere on the site, have you?' he demanded. "'No women on the site, my lord,' said Pataclusp. "'Very bad luck.' "'This one was provocatively dressed,' the high priest said. "'No, no women. "'The palace is not far, you see. "'There must be many places to hide over here,' Dios continued insistently. "'Pataclusp swallowed. "'He knew that all right, whatever had possessed him.' "'I assure you, your reverence,' he said. Dias gave him a scowl and then turned to where Tepic, as it turned out, had been. "'Please ask him not to shake hands with anybody,' said the builder, as Dios hurried after the distant glint of sunlight on the gold. The king still didn't seem to be able to get alongside the idea that the last thing people wanted was a man of the people. Those workers who couldn't get out of the way in time were thrusting their hands behind their back.' Alone now, Pataclusp fanned himself and staggered into the shade of his tent, where, waiting to see him, were Pataclusp 2A, Pataclusp 2A, Pataclusp 2A, and Pataclusp 2A.
Patterclasp always felt uneasy in the presence of accountants, and four of them together was very bad, especially when they were all the same person. Three Patterclasp 2Bs were there as well. The other two, unless it was three by now, were out on the site. He waved his hands in a conciliatory way. All right, all right, he said. What are today's problems? One of the two A's pulled a stack of wax tablets towards him. "'Have you any idea, father?' he began, employing that thin, razor-edged voice that accountants use to preface something unexpected and very expensive. "'What calculus is?' "'You tell me,' said Patterclasp, sagging onto a stool. "'It's what I've had to invent to deal with the wages bill, father,' said another 2A. "'I thought that was algebra,' said Patterclasp. "'We passed algebra last week!' said a third 2A. It's calculus now. I've had to loop myself another four times to work on it, and there's three of me working on... He glanced at his brother's quantum accountancy. What's that for? said his father wearily. Next week, the leading accountant glared at the top slab, for example, he said, you know Retour, the fresco painter? What about him? He, that is, they, have put in a bill for two years' work. Oh, they say they did it on Tuesday, on account of how time is fractal in nature, they said. They said that, said Patterclasp. It's amazing what they pick up, said one of the accountants, glaring at the paracosmic architects. Patterclasp hesitated. How many of them are there? How should we know? We know there were fifty-three. Then he went critical. We've certainly seen him round a lot. Two of the two A's sat back and steepled their fingers. Always a bad sign in anyone having anything to do with money. The problem is, one of them continued, that after the initial enthusiasm, a lot of the workers looped themselves unofficially so that they could stay at home and send themselves out to work. But that's ridiculous, Patterclass protested weakly. They're not different people, they're just doing it to themselves. That's never stopped anyone, father said 2A. How many men have stopped drinking themselves stupid at the age of twenty to save a stranger dying of liver failure at forty? There was silence while they tried to work this one out. A stranger, said Patterclasp uncertainly. I mean himself when older, snapped 2A. That was philosophy, he added. One of the masons beat himself up yesterday, said one of the two bees gloomily. He was fighting with himself over his wife. Now he's going mad because he doesn't know whether it's an earlier version of him or someone he hasn't been yet. He's afraid he's going to creep up on him. There's worse than that too, Dad. We're paying 40,000 people and we're only employing 2,000. It's going to bankrupt us. That's what you're going to say, said Patterclasp. I know. It's all my fault. I just wanted something to hand on to you, you know. I didn't expect all this. It seemed too easy to start with. One of the two A's cleared his throat. It's, um, not quite as bad as all that, he said quietly. What do you mean? The accountant laid a dozen copper coins on the table. Well, um, he said, you see... It occurred to me, since there's all this movement in time, that it's not just people who can be looped. And, um, look, you uh, see these coins? One coin vanished. They're all the same coin, aren't they? said one of his brothers. Well, yes, said the 2A, very embarrassed, because interfering with the divine flow of money was alien to his personal religion. The same coin? 
at five-minute intervals. And you're using this trick to pay the men, said Pataclasp dully. It's not a trick. I gave them the money, said Tuay primly. What happens to it afterwards isn't my responsibility, is it? I don't like any of this, said his father. Don't worry, it all evens out in the end, said one of the two A's. Everyone gets what's coming to them. Yes, that's what I'm afraid of, said Pataclasp. It's, it's just a way of letting your money work for you, said another son. It, it, it's probably quantum. Oh, good, said Pataclasp weakly. We'll get the block on tonight. Don't worry, said one of the two bees. After it's flared the power off, we can all we can all settle down. I told the king we'd do it tomorrow. The Pataclusp two bees went pale in unison. Despite the heat, it suddenly seemed a lot colder in the tent. Tonight, father, said one of them. Surely you mean tonight? Tomorrow said Pataclasp firmly. I've arranged an awning and people throwing lotus blossom. There's going to be a band. Toxins and trumpets and tinkling cymbals and speeches and a meat tea afterwards. That's the way we've always done it. Attracts new customers. They like to have a look around. Father, you've seen the way it soaks up. You've seen the frost. Let it soak. We pataclusps don't go around capping off pyramids as though we were finishing off a garden wall. We don't knock off like a, like a what's-name in the night. People expect a ceremony. But I'm not listening. I've listened to too much of this newfangled stuff. Tomorrow. I've had the bronze plaque made and the velvet curtains and everything. One of the two A's shrugged. It's no good arguing with him, he said. I'm from three hours ahead. I remember this meeting. We couldn't change his mind. I'm from two hours ahead, said one of his clones. I remember you saying that too. Beyond the walls of the tent, the pyramid sizzled with accumulated time. There is nothing mystical about the power of pyramids. Pyramids are dams in the stream of time. Correctly shaped and orientated, with the proper paracosmic measurements correctly plumbed in, the temporal potential of the great mass of stone can be diverted to accelerate or reverse time over a very small area, in the same way that a hydraulic ram can be induced to pump water against the flow. Builders, who were of course ancients, and therefore wise, knew this very well, and the whole point of a correctly built pyramid was to achieve absolute null time in the central chamber, so that a dying king tucked up there would indeed live forever, or at least never actually die. The time that should have passed in the chamber was stored in the bulk of the pyramid and allowed to flare off once every 24 hours. After a few eons, people forgot this and thought you could achieve the same effect by a ritual, B. Pickling people, and C. Storing their soft inner bits in jars. This seldom works. And so the art of pyramid tuning was lost, and all the knowledge became a handful of misunderstood rules and hazy recollections. The ancients were far too wise to build very big pyramids. They could cause very strange things, things that would make mere fluctuations in time look tiny by comparison. By the way, contrary to popular opinion, pyramids don't sharpen razor blades, they just take them back to when they weren't blunt. It's probably because of quantum. Tepic lay on the strata of his bed, listening intently. There were two guards outside the door, and another two on the balcony outside, and he was impressed at Dios's forethought, 
one on the roof. He could hear them trying to make no noise. He'd hardly been able to protest. If black-clad miscreants were getting into the palace, then the person of the king had to be protected. It was undeniable. He slipped off the solid mattress and glided through the twilight to the statue of Bast, the cat-headed god, in the corner, twisted off the head, and pulled out his assassin's costume. He dressed quickly, cursing the lack of mirrors, and then padded across and lurked behind a pillar. The only problem, as far as he could see, was not laughing. Being a soldier in the Jelly Baby was not a high-risk job. There was never a hint of internal rebellion, and since either neighbour could crush the kingdom instantly by force of arms, there was no real point in selecting keen and belligerent warriors. In fact, the last thing the priesthood wanted was enthusiastic soldiers. Enthusiastic soldiers with no fighting to do soon got bored and started thinking dangerous thoughts like how much better they could run the country. Instead, the job attracted big, solid men, the kind of men who could stand stock still for hours at a time without getting bored, men with the build of an ox and the mental processes to match. Excellent bladder control was also desirable. He stepped out onto the balcony. Tepic had learned how not to move stealthily. Millions of years of being eaten by creatures that know how to move stealthily has made humanity very good at spotting stealthy movement. Nor was it enough to make no noise, because little moving patches of silence always aroused suspicion. The trick was to glide through the night with a quiet reassurance, just like the air did. There was a guard standing just outside the room, Tepic drifted past him and climbed carefully up the wall. It had been decorated with a complex bas-relief of the triumphs of past monarchs, so Tepic used his family to give him a leg up. The breeze was blowing off the desert as he swung his legs over the parapet and walked silently across the roof, which was still hot underfoot. The air had a recently cooked smell, tinted with spice. It was a strange feeling to be creeping across the roof of your own palace, trying to avoid your own guards, engaged on a mission in direct contravention of your own decree, and knowing that if you were actually caught you would have yourself thrown to the sacred crocodiles. After all, he'd apparently already instructed that he was to be shown no mercy if he was captured. Somehow, it added an extra thrill. There was freedom of a sort up here on the rooftops, the only kind of freedom available to a king of the valley. It occurred to Tepic that the landless peasants down on the delta had more freedom than he did, although the seditious and non-kingly side of him said, yes, freedom to catch any diseases of their choice, starve as much as they wanted, and die of whatever dreadful ague took their fancy. But freedom of a sort. A faint noise in the huge silence of the night drew him to the riverward edge of the roof. The degel sprawled in the moonlight, broad and oily. There was a boat in midstream, heading back from the far bank and the necropolis. There was no mistaking the figure at the oars. The flare-light gleamed off his bald head. One day, Tepic thought, I'll follow him. I'll find out what it is he does over there. If he goes over in daylight, of course. In daylight, the necropolis was merely gloomy, as though the whole universe had shut down for early closing. He'd even explored it, wandering through streets and alleys that contrived to be still and dusty no matter what the weather was on the other, the living side of the water. There was always a breathless feel about it, which was probably not to be wondered at. Assassins liked the night on general principle, but the night of the necropolis was something else. Or rather, it was the same thing but a lot more of it. 
Besides, it was the only city anywhere on the disc where an assassin couldn't find employment. He reached the light well that opened on the embalmer's courtyard and peered down. A moment later, he landed lightly on the floor and slipped into the room of cases. Hello, lad! Tepic opened the lid of the case. It was still empty. She's in one of the ones at the back, said the king. Never had much of a sense of direction. It was a great big palace. Tepic could barely find his way around it by daylight. He considered his chances of carrying out a search in pitch darkness. It's a family trait, you know. Your granddad had to have left and right painted on his sandals. It was that bad. It's lucky for you that you take after your mother in that respect. It was strange. She didn't talk, she chattered. She didn't seem to be able to hold a simple thought in her head for more than about ten seconds. Her brain appeared to be wired directly to her mouth so that as soon as a thought entered her head she spoke it out loud. Compared to the ladies he had met at soirees in Arc, who delighted in entertaining young assassins and fed them expensive delicacies and talked to them of high and delicate matters while their eyes sparkled like carborundum drills and their lips began to glisten, compared to them, she was as empty as, um, as a, well, as an empty thing. Nevertheless, he found he desperately wanted to find her. The sheer undemandingness of her was like a drug. The memory of her bosom was quite beside the point. "'I'm glad you've come back for her,' said the king vaguely. "'She's your sister, you know. Half-sister, that is. Sometimes I wish I'd married her mother, but you see she wasn't royal. Very bright woman, her mother.' Tepic listened hard. There it was again. A faint breathing noise, only heard at all because of the deep silence of the night. He worked his way to the back of the room, listened again, and lifted the lid of a case. Petrucci was curled up on the bottom, fast asleep with her head on her arm. He leaned the lid carefully against the wall and touched her hair. She muttered something in her sleep and settled into a more comfortable position. "'Er, uh, I think you'd better wake up,' he whispered. She changed position again and muttered something like, <laughs> Tepic hesitated. Neither his tutors nor Dios had prepared him for this. He knew at least seventy different ways of killing a sleeping person, but none to wake them up first. He prodded her in what looked like the least embarrassing area of her skin. She opened her eyes. Oh, she said, it's you, and she yawned. I've come to take you away, said Tepic. You've been asleep all day. I heard someone talking, she said, stretching in a fashion that made Tepic look away hurriedly. It was that priest, the one with the face like a bald eagle. He's really horrible. He is, isn't he? agreed Tepic, intensely relieved to hear it said. So I just kept quiet, and there was the king, the new king. Oh, he was down here, was he? said Tepic weakly. The bitterness in her voice was like a number four stabbing knife in his heart. All the girls say he's really weird, she added, as he helped her out of the case. You can't touch me, you know, I'm not made of china. He steadied her arm, feeling in sore need of a cold bath and a quick run round the rooftops. You're an assassin, aren't you? she went on. I remembered that after you'd gone an assassin from foreign parts, all that black. Have you come to kill the king? I wish I could, said Tepic. He's really beginning to get on my nerves. Look, could you take your bangles off? Why? They make such a noise when you walk. Even Petrach's earrings appeared to chime the hours when she moved her head. I don't want to, she said. I'd feel naked without them. 
You're nearly naked with them, hissed Tepic. Please. She can play the dulcimer, said the ghost of Tepic on the 27th, apropos of nothing much. Not very well, mind you. She's up to page five of Little Pieces for Tiny Fingers. Tepic crept to the passage leading out of the embalming room and listened hard. Silence ruled in the palace, broken only by heavy breathing and the occasional clink behind him as Petracci stripped herself of her jewellery. He crept back. Please hurry up, he said. We haven't got a lot of... Petracci was crying. Um, said Tepic. Uh, some of these were presents from my granny, sniffed Petracci. The old king gave me some too. These earrings have been in my family for ever such a long time. How would you like it if you had to do it? You see... "'Jewelry isn't just something she wears,' said the ghost of Tepikheim on the 27th. "'It's a part of who she is.' "'My word,' he added to himself, "'that's probably an insight. "'Why is it so much easier to think when you're dead?' "'I don't wear any,' said Tepik. Oh, "'You've got all those daggers and things. "'Well, I need them to do my job. "'Well, then.' "'Look, you don't have to leave them here. "'You can put them in my pouch,' he said. "'But we must be going, please.' "'Good-bye,' said the ghost, sadly, "'watching them sneak out to the courtyard. "'He floated back to his corpse, "'who wasn't the best of company. "'The breeze was stronger when they reached the roof. "'It was hotter, too, and dry. "'Across the river, one or two of the older pyramids "'were already sending up their flares, "'but they were weak and looked wrong. "'I feel itchy.' said Petracci. What's wrong? It feels like we're in for a thunderstorm, said Tepic, staring across the river at the Great Pyramid. Its blackness had intensified, so that it was a triangle of deeper darkness in the night. Figures were running around its base like lunatics watching their asylum burn. What's a thunderstorm? Very hard to describe, he said in a preoccupied voice. Can you see what they're doing over there? Petracci squinted across the river. They're very busy she said. Looks more like panic to me. A few more pyramids flared, but instead of roaring straight up, the flames flickered and lashed backwards and forwards, driven by intangible winds. Tepic shook himself. Come on, he said. Let's get you away from here. I, I said we should have capped it this evening, shouted Pataclasp 2B, above the screaming of the pyramid. I, I can't float it up now. The, the, the turbulence up there must be terrific. The ice of day was boiling off the black marble, which was already warm to the touch. He stared distractedly at the capstone on its cradle, and then at his brother, who was still in his nightshirt. Where, where's father? he said. I sent one of us to go and wake him up, said 2A. Who? One of you, actually. Oh, 2B stared again at the capstone. Well, it's not that heavy, he said. Two of us could manhandle it up there. He gave his brother an inquiring look. You must be mad. Send some of the men to do it. They've all run away. Downriver, another pyramid tried to flare, spluttered and then ejected a screaming ragged flame that arched across the sky and grounded near the top of the Great Pyramid itself. It's, it's interfering with the others now, shouted Tooby. Come on, we've, we've got to flare it off. It's the only way. About a third of the way up the pyramid's flanks, a crackling blue zigzag arced out and struck itself on a stone sphinx. The air above it boiled. The two brothers slung the stone between them and staggered to the scaffolding while the dust around them whirled into strange shapes. Can you hear something? 
said 2B, as they stumbled onto the first platform. "'What, you mean the fabric of time and space being put through the ringer?' said 2A. The architect gave his brother a look of faint admiration. It was an unusual remark for an accountant. Then his face returned to its previous look of faint terror. "'No, no, not that,' he said. "'Well, the sound of the very air itself being subjected to horrible tortures?' "'No, no, not that either,' said 2B, vaguely annoyed. "'I mean the creaking noise.' Three more pyramids struck their discharges, which fizzled through the roiling clouds overhead and poured into the black marble above them. "'Can't hear anything like that,' said 2A. "'I, I, I think it's coming from the pyramid. "'Well, you can put your ear against it if you like, but I'm not going to.' The scaffolding swayed in the storm as they eased their way up another ladder, the heavy capstan rocking between them. "'I said we shouldn't do it,' muttered the accountant as the stone slid gently onto his toes. "'We shouldn't have built this. Just shut up and lift your end, will you?' And so, one rocking ladder after another, the brothers Pataclusp eased their bickering way up the flanks of the Great Pyramid, while the lesser tombs along the Dajel fired one after another and the sky streamed with lines of sizzling time. It was around about this point that the greatest mathematician in the world, lying in cosy flatulence in his stall below the palace, realised that something very wrong was happening to numbers, all the numbers. The camel looked along its nose at Tepic. Its expression made it clear that of all the riders in all the world, it would least like to ride it. He was right at the top of the list. However, camels look like that at everyone. Camels have a very democratic approach to the human race. They hate every member of it, without making any distinction for rank or creed. This one appeared to be chewing soap. Tepic looked distractedly down the shadowy length of the royal stables, which had once contained a hundred camels. He'd have given the world for a horse and a moderately-sized continent for a pony, but the stables now held only a handful of rotting war chariots, relics of past glories, an elderly elephant whose presence was a bit of a mystery, and this camel. It looked an extremely inefficient animal. It was going threadbare at the knees. "'Well, this is it,' he said to Petracci. "'I don't dare try the river during the night. I could try and get you over the border.' "'Is that saddle on right?' said Petrucci. "'It looks awfully funny.' "'It's on an awfully odd creature,' said Tepic. "'How do we climb onto it?' "'I've seen the camel drivers at work,' she replied. "'I think they just hit them very hard with a big stick.' The camel knelt down and gave her a smug look. Tepic shrugged, pulled open the doors to the outside world and stared into the face of five guards. He backed away. They advanced. Three of them were holding the heavy Dajel bows, which could propel an arrow through a door or turn a charging hippo into three tons of mobile kebab. The guards had never had to fire them at a fellow human, but looked as though they were prepared to entertain the idea. The guard captain tapped one of the men on the shoulder and said, "'Go and inform the high priest,' he glared at Tepic. "'Throw down all your weapons,' he said. "'What, all of them?' "'Yes, all of them.' "'It may take some time,' said Tepic cautiously. "'And keep your hands where I can see them,' the captain added. "'We could be up against a real impasse here,' Tepic ventured. 
He looked from one guard to another. He knew a variety of methods of unarmed combat, but they all rather relied on the opponent not being about to fire an arrow straight through you as soon as you moved. But he could probably dive sideways, and once he had the cover of the camel stalls he could bide his time, and that would leave Petracci exposed. Besides, he could hardly go around fighting his own guards. That wasn't acceptable behaviour even for a king. There was a movement behind the guards, and Dios drifted into view, as silent and inevitable as an eclipse of the moon. He was holding a lighted torch, which reflected wild highlights on his bald head. Ah, he said, the miscreants are captured. Well done, he nodded to the captain. Throw them to the crocodiles. Dios, said Tepic, as two of the guards lowered their bows and bore down on him. Did you speak? You know who I am, man. Don't be silly. The high priest raised the torch. "'You have the advantage of me, boy,' he said, metaphorically speaking. "'This is not funny,' said Tepic. "'I order you to tell them who I am.' "'As you wish. "'This assassin,' said Dios, "'and the voice had the cut and sear of a thermic lance, "'has killed the king.' "'I am the king, damn it,' said Tepic. "'How could I kill myself?' "'We are not stupid,' said Dios. "'These men know the king does not skulk the palace at night "'or consort with condemned criminals. "'All that remains for us to find out is how you disposed of the body.' "'His eyes fixed on Tepic's face, "'and Tepic realised that the high priest was indeed truly mad. "'It was the rare kind of madness caused by being yourself for so long "'that habits of sanity have etched themselves into the brain. "'I wonder how old he really is,' he thought. These assassins are cunning creatures, said Dios. Have a care of him. There was a crash beside the priest. Petracci had tried to throw a camel prod and missed. When everyone looked back, Tepic had vanished. The guards beside him were busy collapsing slowly to the floor, groaning. Dios smiled. Take the woman, he snapped, and the captain darted forward and grabbed Petracci, who hadn't made any attempt to run away. Dios bent down and picked up the prod. There are more guards outside, he said. I am sure you will realize that. It will be in your interests to step forward. Why, said Tepic from the shadows, he fumbled in his boot for his blowpipe. You will then be thrown to the sacred crocodiles by order of the king, said Dios. Something to look forward to, eh, said Tepic, feverishly screwing bits together. It would certainly be preferable to many alternatives, said Dios. In the darkness, Tepic ran his fingers over the little coded knobs on the darts. Most of the really spectacular poisons would have evaporated or dissolved into harmlessness by now, but there were a number of lesser potions designed to give their clients nothing more than a good night's sleep. An assassin might have to work his way to an inhume past a number of alert bodyguards. It was considered impolite to inhume them as well. "'You could let us go,' said Tepic. "'I suspect that's what you want, isn't it, for me to go away and never come back?' That suits me fine. Dios hesitated. You're supposed to say, and let the girl go, he said. Oh, yes, and, and that too, said Tepic. No, I would be failing in my duty to the king, said Dios. Oh, for goodness sake, Dios, you know I am the king. No, I have a very clear picture of the king. You are not the king, said the priest. Tepic peered over the edge of the camel stall. The camel peered over his shoulder. And then the world went mad. All right, madder.
All the pyramids were blazing now, filling the sky with their sooty light as the brothers' pataclusps struggled to the main working platform. 2A collapsed on the planking, wheezing like an elderly bellows. A few feet away, the sloping side was hot to the touch, and there was no doubt in his mind now that the pyramid was creaking like a sailing ship in a gale. He had never paid much attention to the actual mechanics, as opposed to the cost, of pyramid construction, but he was pretty certain that the noise was as wrong as two and two, making five. His brother reached out to touch the stone, but drew his hand back as small sparks flashed around his fingers. You can, you can feel the warmth, he said. It's, just, it's astonishing. Why? Heating up a mass like this. I, I mean, the, the, the sheer tonnage. I don't like it to be... 2A quavered. Let's just leave the stone here, shall we? I'm sure it'll be all right, and in the morning we can send a gang up here and they'll know exactly what... <laughs> His words were drowned out as another flare crackled across the sky and hit the column of dancing air fifty feet above them. He grabbed part of the scaffolding. Sod take this, he said. I'm off. Hang on a minute, said 2B. I mean, what is creaking? Stone can't creak. The whole bloody scaffolding is moving. Don't be daft. He stared goggled-eyed at his brother. "'Tell me it's the scaffolding,' he pleaded. "'No, I, I'm certain this time it's coming from inside.' They stared at one another, and then at the rickety ladder leading up to the tip, or to where the tip should be. "'Come on,' said Tooby. "'It can't flare off. It's trying to find ways of discharging.' There was a sound as loud as the groaning of continents. Tepic felt it. He felt that his skin was several sizes too small. He felt that someone was holding his ears and trying to twist his head off. He saw the guard captain sag to his knees, fighting to get his helmet off, and he leapt the stall. Tried to leap the stall. Everything was wrong, and he landed heavily on a floor that seemed undecided about becoming a wall. He managed to get to his feet and was pulled sideways, dancing awkwardly across the stable to keep his balance. The stables stretched and shrank like a picture in a distorting mirror. He'd gone to see some once in Ankh, the three of them hazarding a half-coin each, to visit the transient marvels of Dr. Mooner's travelling take-your-breath-away emporium. But you knew then that it was only twisted glass that was giving you a head like a sausage and legs like footballs. Tepic wished he could be so certain that what was happening around him would allow of such a harmless explanation. You probably need a wobbly glass mirror to make it look normal. He ran on taffy legs towards Petracci and the High Priest, as the world was expanded and squeezed around him, and was momentarily gratified to see the girl squirm in Dios's grip and fetch him a tidy thump on the ear. He moved as though in a dream, with the distances changing as though reality was an elastic thing. Another step sent him cannoning into the pair of them. He grabbed Petracci's arm and staggered back to the camel's stall, where the creature was still cudding and watching the scene with the nearest thing a camel will ever get to mild interest, and snatched its halter. No one seemed to be interested in stopping them as they helped each other through the doorway and out into the mad night. "'It helps if you shut your eyes,' said Petracci. Tepic tried it. It worked. A stretch of courtyard that his eyes told him was a quivering rectangle whose sides twanged like bowstrings became, well... Just a courtyard under his feet. Gosh, that was clever, he said. How did you think of that? I always shut my eyes when I'm frightened, said Petracci. Good plan. What's happening? I don't know. I don't want to find out. I think going away from here could be an amazingly sensible idea. How do you make a camel kneel, did you say? I've got any amount of sharp things. The camel, who had a very adequate grasp of human language as it applied to threats, knelt down graciously. 
They scrambled aboard, and the landscape lurched again as the beast jacked itself back onto its feet. The camel knew perfectly well what was happening. Three stomachs and a digestive system like an industrial distillation plant give you a lot of time for sitting and thinking. It's not for nothing that advanced mathematics tends to be invented in hot countries. It's because of the morphic resonance of all the camels, who have that disdainful expression and famous curled lip as a natural result of an ability to do quadratic equations. It's not generally realised that camels have a natural aptitude for advanced mathematics, particularly where they involve ballistics. This evolved as a survival trait, in the same way as a human's hand-and-eye coordination, a chameleon's camouflage, and a dolphin's renowned ability to save drowning swimmers if there's any chance that biting them in half might be observed and commented upon adversely by other humans. The fact is that camels are far more intelligent than dolphins, Never trust a species that grins all the time, it's up to something. They are so much brighter that they soon realise that the most prudent thing any intelligent animal can do, if it would prefer its descendants not to spend a lot of time on a slab, with electrodes clamped to their brains, or sticking mines on the bottom of ships, or being patronised rigid by zoologists, is to make bloody certain humans don't find out about it. So they long ago plumped for a lifestyle that, in return for a certain amount of porterage and being prodded with sticks, allowed them adequate food and grooming and the chance to spit in a human's eye and get away with it. And this particular camel, the result of millions of years of selective evolution to produce a creature that could count the grains of sand it was walking over and close its nostrils at will and survive under the broiling sun for many days without water, was called You Bastard. And he was, in fact, the greatest mathematician in the world. You bastard was thinking. There seems to be some growing dimensional instability here, swinging from zero to nearly 45 degrees by the look of it. How interesting. I wonder what's causing it. Let V equal 3. Let tau equal chi 4. Cud, 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 cud. Let kappa stroke Y be an evil-smelling bugger renowned as the greatest camel mathematician of all time, who invented a math of eight-dimensional space while lying down with his nostrils closed in a violent sandstorm. Differential tensor domain with four imaginary spin coefficients. Petracci hit him across the head with her sandal. Come on, get a move on, she yelled. You bastard thought. Therefore, H to the enabling power equals V over S, cud, cud, cud. Thus... In hypersyllogic notation, Tepic looked behind them. The strange distortions in the landscape seemed to be settling down, and Dios was... Dios was striding out of the palace and had actually managed to find several guards whose fear of disobedience overcame the terror of the mysteriously distorted world. You bastard stood stoically chewing. Cud, cud, cud. Which gives us an interesting shortening oscillation. What would be the period of this? Let period equal x, cud, cud, cud. Let t equal time. Let initial period... Petracci bounced up and down on his neck and kicked hard with her heels, an action which would have caused any anthropoid male to howl and bang his head against the wall. It won't move! Can't you hit it? Tepic brought his hand down as hard as he could on you bastard's hide, raising a cloud of dust and deadening every nerve in his fingers. It was like hitting a large sackful of coat hangers. Come on, he muttered. Dios raised a hand. Halt in the name of the king, he shouted. 
An arrow thudded into you bastard's hump. Equals 6.3 recurring, reduce, that gives us, ouch, um, 314 seconds. You bastard turned his long neck around. His great hairy eyebrows made accusing curves as his yellow eyes narrowed and took a fix on the high priest. And he put aside the interesting problem for a moment and dredged up the familiar ancient maths that his race had perfected long ago. Let range equal 41 feet, let wind speed equal 2, vector 1, 8, cud, let glutinosity equal 7. Tepic drew a throwing knife. Dios took a deep breath. He's going to order them to fire on us, Tepic thought. In my own name, in my own kingdom, I'm going to be shot. Angle 2, 5, cud, fire. It was a magnificent volley. The gob of cud had commendable lift and spin, and hit with a sound like a sound like half a pound of semi-digested grass hitting someone in the face. There was nothing else it could sound like. The silence that followed was by way of being a standing ovation. The landscape began to distort again. This was clearly not a place to linger. You bastard looked down at his front legs. Let legs equal four. He lumbered into a run. Camels apparently have more knees than any other creature, and you bastard ran like a steam engine, with lots of extraneous movement at right angles to the direction of motion, accompanied by a thunderous barrage of digestive noises. "'Bloody stupid animal!' muttered Petracci as they jolted away from the palace. "'But it looks like it finally got the idea.' Uh, "'Gauge invariant repetition rate of 3.5 over Z. What's she talking about? Bloody stupid lives over in Tassort.' Though they swung through the air as though jointed with bad elastic, you bastards' legs covered a lot of ground, and already they were bouncing through the sleeping, packed-earth streets of the city. "'It's starting again, isn't it?' said Petracci. "'I'm going to shut my eyes!' Tepic nodded. The firebrick-hot houses around them were doing their slow-motion mirror dance again, and the road was rising and falling in a way that solid land had no right to adopt. "'It's like the sea,' he said. "'I can't see anything,' said Petracci firmly. "'I mean the sea, the ocean, you know, waves. "'I've heard about it. Is anyone chasing us?' Tepic turned in the saddle. "'Not that I can make out,' he said. "'It looks as—' "'From here he could see past the long, low bulk of the palace "'and across the river to the Great Pyramid itself. "'It was almost hidden in dark clouds, "'but what he could see of it was definitely wrong. "'He knew it had four sides, and he could see all eight of them.' It seemed to be moving in and out of focus, which he felt instinctively was a dangerous thing for several million tons of rock to do. He felt a pressing urge to be a long way away from it. Even a dumb creature like the camel seemed to have the same idea. You bastard was thinking, Delta squared, thus, dimensional pressure K will result in a 90-degree transformation in chi brackets 6 times PU brackets T for a K bundle of any three invariables, or four minutes, plus or minus ten seconds. The camel looked down at the great pads of his feet. Let speed equal gallop. How did you make it do that? said Tepic. I didn't. It's doing it by itself. Hang on. This wasn't easy. Tepic had saddled the camel, but neglected the harness. Petracci had handfuls of camel hair to hang on to. All he had was handfuls of Petracci. No matter where he tried to put his hands, they encountered warm, yielding flesh. Nothing in his long education had prepared him for this, whereas everything in Petracci's obviously had. 
Her long hair whipped his face and smelled beguilingly of rare perfume, an effect achieved by distilling the testicles of a small tree-dwelling species of bear with the vomit of a whale and adding a handful of rose petals. Tepic would probably have felt no better for knowing this. "'Are you all right?' he shouted above the wind. "'I'm hanging on with my knees. That must be very hard. You get special training.' Camels gallop by throwing their feet as far away from them as possible and then running to keep up. Knee joints clicking like chilly castanets, you bastard thrashed up the sloping road out of the valley and windmilled along the narrow gorge that led under towering limestone cliffs to the high desert beyond. And behind them, tormented beyond measure by the inexorable tide of geometry, unable to discharge its burden of time, the Great Pyramid screamed, lifted itself off its base, and its bulk swishing through the air as unstoppably as something completely unstoppable, ground around precisely ninety degrees, and did something perverted to the fabric of time and space. You bastard sped along the gorge, his neck stretched out to its full extent, his mighty nostrils flaring like jet intakes. It's terrified, Petrachi yelled. Animals always know about this sort of thing. What sort of thing? Forest fires and things. We haven't got any trees. Well, floods and, and, and things. They've got some strange natural instinct. Phi 1700 bracket U over V lateral EV equals a tranche of 7 to 12. The sound hit them. It was as silent as a dandelion clock striking midnight. But it had pressure. It rolled over them, suffocating as velvet, nauseating as a battered saveloy, and was gone. You bastard slowed to a walk, a complicated procedure that involved precise instructions to each leg in turn. There was a feeling of release, a sense of stress withdrawn. You bastard stopped. In the pre-dawn glow, he'd spotted a clump of thorned cephacia bushes growing in the rocks by the track. Angle left times equals 37.y equals 19.z equals 43. Bite. Peace descended. There was no sound except for the eructations of the camel's digestive tract and the distant warbling of a desert owl. Petrachi slid off her perch and landed awkwardly. My bottom, she announced to the desert in general, is one huge blister. Tepic jumped down and half ran, half staggered up the scree by the roadside, then jogged across the cracked limestone plateau until he could get a good look at the valley. It wasn't there any more. End of CD 5